we're going to jump right in now to what we've been looking at. So the past several months, two months, I should say, a little over two months, we've been looking at a series in, uh, in on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to be wrapping this up very shortly over the next few weeks. And then once we're done with that, we're going to be moving into the fall, uh, looking at and getting back into another book study. Typically what we do here at Calvary Slow, we go through books of the Bible, we let God speak to us through those books, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so on and so forth. Um, we've been doing that ever since we started, and every once in a while we kind of deviate and take little moments of just punctuated uh, time to look at certain topics, and this topic that we've been looking at over the past few months is the subject and the person of the Holy Spirit. So we looked at, first of all, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now we've been looking at kind of the way in which the Holy Spirit works. So we've been looking at various topics of which how the Holy Spirit moves and what he does. So what we'll be looking at here today is the subject of the Holy Spirit and mission, all right? So I want to clarify that. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit and missions, uh, which is kind of a cultural way of understanding within modern, at least westernized Christianity, missions being uh, somebody going on a plane, going to another country, uh, or spending 10 days, or you know, two weeks, whatever, in another country, doing something, uh, maybe playing music in the street, uh, evangelizing, and all that type of stuff, and, th- and that's all good, it's all well, we do that as a church every once in a while, um, but I'm talking more in a general term in the concept of mission, meaning there is an aim, a point, a, a, a purpose of your life that is in league or in sync with God, with what God's up to in this world. That it's, it's in line with who God is, with his character, and in line with what God is doing. We would call that mission. The reason why we would even use that word mission is because uh, this is what Jesus comes to do, is to embark upon a mission uh, and to also call his redeemed people, we call this the church, to engage in this whole subject, which we'll look at as mission, all right? Mission, or we would call it living on mission. So next week, we'll take a look at more, kind of dissecting this further, taking the, this, the distinction between missions and mission, or what I would describe as particular mission versus uh, a very general form of mission. But what I want to look at right now is the passage that we'll be spending the next two weeks really focusing on. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I'll pick it up at verse 16, just to give you a little bit of a context. Uh, this is in the section of the gospel narrative where Jesus is about to ascend heaven. So in other words, he comes to earth, he dies on the cross, he rises again from the dead the third day, uh, hangs out with the disciples for about 30 days, 40 days. Uh, Jesus is about to tell his disciples, I'm going to go away, I'm going to go to heaven. So Jesus goes out with them, he's kind of giving them his parting words. Typically, if you knew that you were going to go away, and you had a group of people that you're going to be hanging out with and talking to, you'd be telling them the most important things that you can communicate to them. So in other words, this is Jesus imparting or passing on Really important information to his followers. And this is what he would, or what my, at least my Bible has this little like title that says the Great Commission. If you've been around church life at any length of time, you've heard of this thing called the Great Commission. So it's Jesus calling his disciples to go do something. So first of all, before we jump in, let me read this. I'll pray and then I'll try to ask a question uh, that maybe some of you might even be thinking. So let me read this. Verse 16 Uh, I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee on the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Just pause there for a second, just as a side note. This is kind of a fascinating thought to me, because here's Jesus' disciples. He's already resurrected. 
Uh, these are followers of Jesus, mind you. Um, they're on this mountainside. Some of them are worshiping Jesus. Others, it just simply tells us. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible is it does not try to sugarcoat or gloss over what's happening. In other words, the aim of the Bible is not to point out the super saintliness of these, of these people, of the followers of Jesus. Uh, some of them worship. Some of them doubted. But it tells me is that in the context, always, whenever God's people gather together, there are going to be those that uh, are engaged. They're worshiping. They, their hearts are there. They want to, uh, they see the beauty of Jesus. i put it that way. Others, when they gather they're not really convinced. There's certain things that they're not absolutely certain of. There are doubts that are still resident within their heart. In fact, the matter is, that's okay. So that's you. If you're here this morning and you're like, I can't wait to sing again, or I can't wait to worship, or I can't wait to give my heart to God, I can't wait to take communion, I can't wait to get into the Word of God, it's awesome. If you're here this morning and you're just like, oh, there's so many things I don't even understand in my life. My life is literally spiraling out of control. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Not much makes sense. I feel like I'm in the midst of absolute confusion. I don't know how God is going to make sense of the chaos in my life. But somehow, somehow I know that God is real. Welcome. <laughs> Glad you're here. Because this, this, this has always been, you are, you're, you're on the precipice, walking, you're in the threshold, walking into the story that all of God's people have always been a part of. Some worship, others just kind of riddled with these doubts, commingled with traces of confidence and trust that God somehow is big. How he's going to make sense of everything is yet to be determined. But here it says, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm always, uh, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So God, right now we ask that you'd help us uh, to understand and make sense of what this has to say, to understand how the Holy Spirit calls us, uh, those that have followed Jesus, calls us into this life, God, that is part of something way bigger, something way beyond who we are and what we oftentimes even imagine. God, that, that you have things for us that are off the charts, not even on a radar screen, but we pray, God, that you give us eyes to see those things that are just kind of on the edge. They're just edging into our lives. And God, give us faith, give us the ability to trust you even in things that we just can't make sense of. So help us, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the beginning of the book of Acts, kind of the corollary to this little section we just read here, um, we're told a little bit more information. Luke gives us a little bit of another angle as to what happens here. Just before Jesus goes up to uh, heaven, he ascends, uh, right after this moment of the Great Commission, we're told that Jesus tells his disciples, go into Jerusalem and wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, what I would suggest to you, um, this is the reason why we're connecting the Holy Spirit with the subject of mission, is because we believe that the Holy Spirit... Uh, what he does is he empowers God's people to live on mission, to live the life, to live a life of being called to be sent out by the power of God for God's purposes. So some of you, the question I wanted to kind of anticipate, maybe some of you are asking, why? Why would I want to do that? 
I mean, some of us might even be having this hard disconnect, like how and why would my life even want to pair up with God's mission? I mean, some of us might even be anticipating the realities of our lives. We're like, my life's messed up. Like, I'm not that type of person. Or, uh, and how do I make sense of a life that's a mission? Here's what I would suggest to you. What I, what, what I hope to try to uh, prove as we read through this and make some sense of this. The idea of mission is also deeply connected to the idea of a story. In other words, uh, mission, as we'll look at in a moment here, and the way the Holy Spirit moves in the realm of mission, is deeply connected to a story that God is unfolding, that, that we'll, we'll make sense of hopefully in a moment. What I would suggest to you, every one of us um, have, and are, to some degree, we are living our lives in connection to and relation to some form of a story, some narrative, some grand theme governs our lives. All right, so if you want to think of it this way, in the context, if you lived in Syria, if you were a Christian in Syria and you're going about your everyday life and all of a sudden ISIS comes in and begins to occupy your territory, your story life has been hijacked by people that hate you and wish you dead. In other words, you have no control over this. You are a prisoner. Your story has been completely hijacked and your life is at the mercy of people that would hope to see you die or convert. So the point of the matter is, is that you're in a, in a place where your story has been completely uh, outside of your control. But the fact of the matter is that some Christians in Syria are finding sense in God even in the midst of deep persecution. Some of them are even willing to die for their faith. Why? Because they're willing to cling to the story that God has said about them rather than completely subject themselves to an alternative story. Does that make any sense? Let me bring this into the context of today. Every single one of us in this room have some grand theme, grand story that governs, leads, guides, directs, informs, uh, and gives some sense of meaning to our lives. Every one of us. The problem is, is if we give ourselves to any other grand theme or grand name or grand story that is not the story of God, at some point that story has an expiration date. When it expires and when it breaks, we end up breaking with it. In other words, there are hopes and dreams that we put ourselves, our hope, our lives into expecting somehow that there will come a return. That return might be money, it might be fame, it might be popularity, it might be affirmation from somebody, it might be the fact that somebody you know, welcomes us in, we have a sense of belonging. And if that story that we give ourselves over to is not Jesus, it's not the Jesus story, at some point... Our lives will come undone. We will fall apart. We will crumble. Because there's no other story that's as long and sustaining and sustainable as the story of God. In other words, God has been doing something all throughout history. And what we see in this story that we just read, that Jesus is, I think, giving a call to his followers, his disciples. So let me put it this way. If you are a Christian... You are, by definition, a disciple of Jesus. Now, again, I realize to some degree, uh, a lot in our modern-day culture, we have a tendency to focus a lot upon people who just simply make a decision to follow Jesus. And that idea of making a decision sometimes can be a little bit separated from the idea of being a disciple. But the Bible actually describes kind of a combination of both, that we follow Jesus, we pray a prayer, we decide whatever you want to describe it, but the main emphasis is really more upon being a disciple, following Jesus as a disciple. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, your, your life has been brought into the story of God. That's how we make sense of our lives. 
And what that means is that God enables us, God empowers us, God calls us, and what we saw right here, God actually sends us to do something. So the question is, what is God calling us to do? And again, another question is, why would this make sense? Because, again, I go back to the original thing that I was stating earlier, that if your life is given to any other story other than the story of God, at some point it will break. And when it breaks apart, where is redemption? Where is their wholeness? Where is their forgiveness found? In any other stories. And what you'll discover, it's really not there. And this is what we find that the gospel story is that we see a God that comes and brings healing and wholeness. So what I want to begin to do is I want to just kind of point out four specific things about the passage that we just read. We'll actually only look at one of them today, and the next three we'll look at next week. So hopefully that all makes sense. So the first thing we'll take a look at is that I would suggest that living engaged with God's mission, or if you want to think of it this way, living engaged within God's story involves three things. One involves knowing the story to which you've been called, knowing the story. So let me to recite Jesus' words again. Jesus states, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you're kind of like, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean for Jesus to say that? Well, this is really important because what Jesus is stating here is he's declaring something that has been long a part of the story of Israel, the, the people of God. That they've been looking for somebody that would come and bring about healing between heaven and earth. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a divide, a divorce. In other words, earth in which we live in right now is not in harmony with heaven, right? Have you noticed that? We live in a world in which, for the most part, by and large, planet Earth, inhabitants of planet Earth, bipedal uprights, do not want heaven's rule or reign over their life. They're not interested in God informing or guiding or leading or bringing life or salvation. We, by nature, which we'll get into this more in just a second, we would prefer to live in a world in which is governed by ourselves, not governed by God. By and large, that is the world which we live in. So what we see is that Jesus makes this radical declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I want to spend our time this morning trying to unpack and understand what in the world does that mean for all authority in heaven and earth to be given to Jesus. So we'll try to make sense of that. Second thing that we'll take a look at, again, all this, I'll just give you these for next week. One we'll take a look at, it involves an understanding of sentness, and I'm certain that's actually not a word, so if you're freaking out right now because you're like a literary major, uh, it's okay, metal out. Um, I know it's not a word because my thing was constantly trying to correct it, and so I actually had to tell it, I, that's learn the spelling, like, you know how you press that, you right-click and learn, so anyways, I, I deceived my word processor to think this is a real word. So anyways, um, I'm certain I won't deceive you guys, you guys are too smart. So sentness, there's a sense of knowing that you've been called to go to do something. Thirdly, it involves discipleship. Making disciples, this involves uh, not only being a disciple, but being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that also makes disciples. Again, we'll unpack all this next week. Uh, fourthly, it involves a sense of hope and empowerment. That's why Jesus would say, behold, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. So these words from Jesus are intended to really breathe a sense of hope. That even though you are, there's going to be moments in your sentness state where you feel as if you're on a cul-de-sac going around in circles, and there's nothing but pain, loss, danger, terror, all these other things, and all these other things in which the world is constantly saying, be afraid, be very, very afraid. In the back of our mind, we can carry these words of Jesus, uh, where he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. In other words, there will be a completion moment where everything 
all the brokenness, all the destruction, all the unrest will find a place of wholeness. Jesus promised us on that. So that brings hope and empowerment. Now, what I want to do this morning, I want to just mainly focus on that first one, which is really knowing the story. Knowing the story. Let me say this, uh, just for me uh, as a personal background. Um, I, I grew up in a church that really did an amazing job teaching me the Bible. And I would say I'm, I'm so thankful. In fact, the reason why we value teaching the Bible the way that we do is because I, I was taught that. So what I learned a lot was how to understand the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, within the context of those passages. And I would say this. Um, it wasn't until years later that I was a Christian and following Jesus and learning and continuing to grow that I began to realize, like, um, I, 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 I was taught really well how to observe the trees. But the forest was something that was a little bit ambiguous. I didn't understand it, to put it in another context. I, didn't, I, I was able to kind of recite certain elements within a chapter, but if you were to ask me, what is the grand theme? Where is everything? How does all 66 books of this Bible, this library that we call the Bible, how does it all come together? I, I don't know if I would be able to fully uh, communicate that or convey that, or even if I really, really even knew that. And so what I would suggest is for us as a church, I, I, don't, I want you guys to know not only the, 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 the trees, but also the forest. In other words, to understand the grand storyline, the grand narrative as to what's going on. Because when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, that statement was said within a long history, a long-standing, ongoing history of expectation. In other words, Jesus' followers had this insane expectation that one day God was going to do something. That one day God was going to show up and make that which is wrong into something that which was right. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, all authority in heaven and earth belong to me. Profound statement, especially when you think about the fact that within the next 60 months, we're going to be voting for a brand new president, all right? And so you're going to see a lot of, like, mud sling. We've seen some of that as well. You're going to see a lot of bickering, a lot of marginal, marginalizing. You're going to see a lot of polarizing. You're going to see a lot of stuff going on. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, when all the voting is done, what you're going to have is somebody that's going to basically say, all authority from the West Coast to the East Coast belong to me. But the reality is that's vastly different than Jesus saying all authority in heaven and earth belong to me. In other words, Jesus is saying the whole cosmos belongs to me, and I'm going to set it all right. You realize how hope-filled that is? Because we live in a world that's filled with lots of brokenness. Our lives are crippled by lots of brokenness. And yet we have a God that makes promises like this. I haven't abandoned you, I haven't forgotten about you, I haven't left you, I haven't forsaken you. I know exactly what's going on in your life. All authority in heaven and earth belong to me, and I will make right all that which is wrong. This is the great hope of the age. So with that, again, Jesus' statements were actually fit within a very long history, and I want to try to unpack a little bit for you guys a little bit of that history, because again, I would suggest, as I mentioned at the very beginning, us engaging in this mission of God involves, to some degree, our understanding of the story of which this was found. So with that, I'm going to do my best to try to help you guys understand a little bit about the story. So what we'll do is, uh, with the assistance of some really great authors that have been really helpful for me in understanding this, I want to try to attempt to basically paint a picture for you of the entire Bible, all right? 
all right, in a very, very short amount of time, maybe like 10, 15 minutes or so, something like that. So it might be a little bit technical. Hopefully it's not too technical, and hopefully you guys are all juiced up on caffeine. You're able to really pay attention. Um, but what I, I would just think about and follow along, I got slides, so hopefully it'll be nice and easy for you guys. I want you to think about um, the, the entire Bible, basically the way some of these authors have described it, in six different uh, acts, six different acts. Next slide, I'm going to show you a couple books that have been really helpful for me, so you can just check this out. Um, two books, one uh, written by a professor uh, by the name of Christopher Wright. It's called The Mission of God's People. It's an outstanding book. In fact, I have them right here. Um, the Mission of God's People. It's been really helpful for me. The second book is called The Drama of Scripture. It's called Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. And uh, it's really, both these are really great. Both these guys are actually uh, really smart, but love Jesus and really just about God's kingdom. So in other words, these guys are not just ivory tower people, you know, pontificating on uh, stuff. These guys are actually living the gospel in really profound ways and making a huge impact. So um, the, the, the ideas that I'm going to kind of share with you kind of to some degree are, are, are from and have been germinated to some degree from what these guys have said. So um, what these guys have said in the drama scripture, they kind of break the entire Bible down into basically six main Acts, and I'll give them to you, and then we'll go through each one of them. The first one is the act of creation. This is basically Genesis 1 and 2, and this is the fact that God actually establishes his kingdom. God creates good. It's this great, good kingdom. Act 2 is the fall, rebellion in the kingdom. Uh, Act 3, redemption initiated. This king uh, chooses Israel. It begins to establish a plan, unfold a plan. Act 4, redemption accomplished. I'll come back and go through all these one by one real quickly. Uh, redemption accomplished, which is the coming of the king. Jesus comes into the world. He does something. Act 5, it's the mission of the church. Again, uh, kind of draw the tile of the Holy Spirit and mission from something along those lines. And then we see this basically from the book of Acts all the way throughout the remainder of the New Testament. We see the spreading of the good news, the spreading of the gospel. And finally, Act 6, which is redemption completed, the return of the king. Jesus will come back. He makes his promise. He says, I'm going to come back and we set this world that's deeply uh, fragmented and broken. I'm going to set it right. I'm going to bring healing in an ultimate sense. So first of all, let's jump in. Let's take a look at, real briefly, creation. So Act 1, the way he describes it, is creation. God establishes his kingdom. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 unfold for us this picture that God creates all things. God says over all creation, it's good. So God's declaration over this physical world that he created and physical human beings that were called and to, to govern this world, to lead this world, to steward this world, if, we, if you would. Not take advantage of it, not rape and pillage the world, not rape and pillage each other, but to steward the world, to create good things, to develop good things and systems that flow, that bring fullness and life. God looks at all of this and says, it is good. God actually looks at creation and says, it's a good thing. The second thing that we see, Act 2, is uh, uh, moves on to what we would call the fall. And this, obviously, in Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with the story, God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are these beings that bear his image. And their job, their task, is to reflect this life-giving God on planet Earth. To use their hands, to use their mind, to use their creativity, to use their abilities, their will, to, to build things and to create things that reflect the beauty of their creator God. And as they do this, and as they work in rhythm with God, then this earth will become and reach even a greater, more beautiful potential. But what we know in the story in Genesis chapter 3 is that's not what happens. Because what we're told is we're introduced to this talking snake. So it's kind of a crazy story. 
and the story, if you're just simply reading it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to who the identity of this talking snake is. We know this a little bit later, but we begin to realize that this is actually the devil. So the devil basically is lying to Adam and Eve, telling them, your potential is not found in God. Your potential is actually found in self-actualization. That's a big word. The idea is that your potential, your fullness of life, is actually not found in God because God, not really sure if God can be fully trusted. He begins to lie to them. He begins to deceive them that God is not fully trustworthy. So therefore, your answers to the fullness of life is going to be found with inside you. And we know the story that you know, Adam and Eve partake of this forbidden fruit, whatever this forbidden fruit is. And the moment they partake of this forbidden fruit, it says that their eyes were open. They began to really be able to discern good from evil. In other words, but along with that also came a sense of their own shame and their own nakedness. But from that came, God says, the day that you eat of this fruit, the day that you do the thing I told you not to do, you will die. So in other words... First was the story of God. Adam and Eve were living within the story. There was harmony. We're told that at times, or God would show up in the cool of the morning, whatever that was, and he would walk with them. There was harmony between Adam and Eve. There's harmony between Adam and Eve and God. There's harmony between Adam and Eve and all creation. In other words, I would imagine when they would go out, they could actually go for a swim in the ocean with great whites without the threat of being chomped. That's what I at least imagine. The point of the matter is, is that there was harmony on every level. The moment they distrusted God brought this Pandora's box of brokenness, death, on every level. Death between Adam and Eve. Death between the relationship. Death between the relationship and God. Ultimately, physical death. But death began to cripple this good, beautiful, reflecting of God creation. So everything that Adam and Eve had once had under their authority, under their foot, under within their scope of beauty had now begun to rot and break and fall apart. So in other words, it's kind of like this disease that began to infiltrate Adam and Eve and all creation. This brokenness. Uh, rather than harmony, there was disharmony. Rather than uh, a sense of wholeness. There was nothing but brokenness. And all of this began to cripple all of creation. That's what we would describe as the fall. This is really uh, not just simply a sickness that came upon Adam and Eve. It was really rooted in a sense of distrust towards God. When you think about it this way, this is by definition what happens and what brings about brokenness in our lives. Is somewhere within our hearts, we make these cognitive decisions whereby we're not really certain whether or not God truly cares about us. We're not really sure, does God care about me enough to the point where he will take care of everything in my life? And we hear, to some degree, the temptations, did God really say he loves you? Did God really say he's going to take care of you? And we begin to doubt. But then we begin to listen to another narrative, another storyline that says, maybe life is found by you just making your own choices, your own cognitive decisions. The word for that is uh, autonomy. And the word autonomy is kind of a really fascinating word. It's two different words, auto meaning uh, same uh, or self, I should say, and, and nomi, which is the word that is basically meaning law, self-law. And it's the idea that by being autonomous beings, we are living not according to God's law that brings life, but according to our own law. The way that, in other words, we are the captain of our own ship. The problem with that is, is that we 
don't know the North Star. We don't know where true north is found. And what ends up happening is we go on and chart these courses in our lives and we find ourselves lost and broken. Jesus describes it as like these destructive fires that unless quenched, the moment we cease breathing and we die, it goes on to this eternity of brokenness. But the point that Jesus would make is that this concept of the fall is so all-pervasive. And the way back to Eden, the way back to wholeness, the way back to healing is not simply by behavior modification, making ourselves better, or by good advice, or even necessarily by simply uh, following concepts about Jesus. Because it's not about just simply following concepts of Jesus, it's following Jesus. And so that's the second act, which is the fall, rebellion of the kingdom. Act three is redemption initiated. And this actually takes us throughout the majority of the entire Bible, okay? So if you think about it this way, and the way these guys kind of describe it is basically from Genesis all the way through to the last book of the Old Testament, which is called Malachi. We see basically two different scenes, the way these guys describe it. Scene one is the people for the king. So God is breaking into human history, which has been broken and disfigured by the fall, and God is looking and seeking for an opportunity to bring about healing and wholeness. And the way that God does this is by going to a a small community. Um, One other scholar, which I'll unpack in a second here, describes uh, three different layers to this. You know, he goes to Abraham first, and he calls uh, Israel, and he calls David, and repeats it all. Um, But the second scene here, we'll go go back, sorry, we'll go back to that uh, other side first. And then the second scene, which, or uh, scene two, which is he describes as a land for the people. And this is like Joshua all the way through Malachi, where God takes his people and he actually gives them territory, gives them actual space, land to spread out, land to grow, land to form crops, land to do all the stuff that you do on lands. Um, and all of this is part of the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, again, what I would suggest, if you don't know the grand narrative to like what's going on throughout the entire Bible, it's easy to get lost. I'll give you an example of this. Like I was talking to my wife this past week. She was reading. Uh, she does a, a weekly Bible plan or a yearly Bible plan and whatnot. Right now she's in the book of Judges. And if you guys have ever read the book of Judges, it's one of the most disturbing books in the entire Bible. Like, yes, it's radically disturbing. In fact, the passage that she was reading was so disturbing. She's like, she called me in. She texted me. She's like, Brian, uh, can you help me figure this out? I come in there. She's like, so I read this passage. It talks about gang rape. It talks about, like, dismembering somebody and sending their body parts all around. Like, what, what, what's going on? It's really, really creepy. And, uh, right, I, that's, that's really, really messed up. And that's the point. It, it is the story of the book of Judges fits within the grand narrative. In other words, the writer of Judges is, is purposefully trying to chronicle, here's what happens when we allow alternative stories or self-government or autonomy to hijack our lives rather than God-government. God's kingdom, it gets pretty bad fast. Some of us, we're familiar with how evil and bad things can become. But again, Judges is is just a book within the storyline or the story arc of everything God's doing. In other words, it is dark, dark, dark. Yet, even in the midst of that deep darkness, the prophets would come on the scene and they're like, but a light has shown. This is why we love the good news, because God hasn't abandoned us in our brokenness. This is what we see that God does. This is a storyline in the entire Bible that no matter how dark 
it gets, no matter how evil we find ourselves in the midst of this wickedness, no matter how much we have been sinned against, no matter how much we have sinned against others, there's still redemption for you. This is the storyline. So first of all, take a look real quickly is um, one author. So the next slide you can turn there real quick. A uh, guy by the name of Richard Bauckham. He's a great New Testament theologian. He describes it kind of like this, that throughout uh, a book that he'd written called The Bible and Mission, uh, he describes kind of three main ways in which God breaks in and begins to establish kind of these relationships. We would call them covenants with his people. That God's purpose really out of uh, God's work, God's work within these redemptive purposes, I would say, is to first uh, to work within a community and then, uh, then through that community. So in other words, God first shines and, and, and fuses his blessing upon somebody. And so as they are kind of like this container filled with blessing, the objective is not to just make them blessed, but to be a blessing. Um, that, that's, the, that's the big idea. That's the picture. So when God blesses us, it's not so that we would just simply be the container of these things. In other words, we are not the end all of life's goodness. That this is part of, that's part of the broken, rotten story in which we live in, right? In other words, that's capitalism gone astray, where it's, it's about me, it's about what I can do, even if it's at the expense of other people, and even if others suffer along the way. All that matters is my greatness. All that matters is my hidden potential to be fully realized in spite of the brokenness that I might bring along the way. Do, do you realize if we, if we all live that way? Uh, we would live in a world that looks just like it does now because <laughs> um, that's what happens. But what we have is a God that basically breaks in and he comes to Abraham and he calls him in Genesis chapter 12. God chooses Abraham to bring redemptive blessings to all the families of the earth. God makes his promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that through you're going to be a blessing to all. And then God calls in Exodus, Israel. He chooses Israel ultimately to reveal himself to all the nations. And then God calls David. God chooses David really to bring his just rule, in other words, his kingdom through David to all the nations of the earth. That God makes his promise to David. He says, David, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations through my government, and my government will have no end. So these are promises. Now, the, the, the crazy thing is, is that the, the means by which God used Israel, rather than Israel being this, like, even though Israel does end up becoming the source of blessing, Israel is infected with the same disease that the whole world's infected with. Autonomy, sin, self-focusedness, and yet God still finds this way to bring about life through them. So, and then I would say, I would add to this list, and even though Richard Buckham doesn't, I add to the prophets, and the prophets were these strange group of people that basically God chooses, they kind of live on the margins, some of them are like living out in the desert, eating weird food, dressing really weird ways, they're completely not in sync with the rest of culture and the rest of humanity, if they live today, we would call them artists, all right? Um, the point of the matter is, is that these people actually are able to speak prophetically. They say things, they write things. It'd be like, you know, um, Bob Dylan, you know, is able to pick up a guitar and through song, somehow just a nice, simple three and a half minute song, completely condemn entire world governing system. And you're like, oh my gosh, that was like really deeply profound. Well, that's who these guys were. They were able to write in ways that profoundly uh, first of all, called the people of Israel on their sins, said, what are you guys doing? But then finally called them back to being Yahweh's people. Why? Because they were always 
in a state of forgetfulness. They were always forgetting who they were. Uh, let, me, let me give it to you this way. I have two daughters. You guys all know that. Most of you guys know that. And when my daughters were really young, uh, the way that we would try to help discipline them if they did something wrong, one of the things that we would often do is like, remind them, like, look, the way that you're acting is, is out of character with your family name. Like, like you're Supar. Supars don't act like that. It's not what Supars do. You're acting out of character. And it's what the prophets would do all the time. They would say to God's people, like, like, hey, the whole thing of worshiping Baal, the whole thing of giving away your life to all these other false idols, the whole thing about being coming sexually deviant, all of this, you're acting out of character with who you are. This is not who you are. You belong to Yahweh. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You're not an orphan. You actually have a father that loves you. This is what the prophets would always do. And it was a way of bringing back Israel back into the story, which they so quickly drift from. All right, does this it, it resonate with anybody? Like, anybody like, oh, wow, that sounds kind of like my life. Like, yeah, because that is our lives. It's exactly where we're at. We're always deviating, drifting from that story. And so, um, next thing is I want to take a look at Act 4, is redemption accomplished. And this kind of brings us back to actually where we start at the very beginning. So what we see from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John throughout the entire storyline, what we call the Gospels, the, the Gospeling, the story proclaiming of this really good news. The word Gospel, if you don't know this, actually means good news. Good news about what? Well, what you'll discover is that throughout the Gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this Gospel message, this de- declaration that Jesus, all right, we read Jesus Christ, right? So oftentimes in Christian culture, we say things over and over again, and sometimes those things that we say uh, begin to become meaningless, um, like the word, I love you. You know, those three words we say, we can say them a lot and not enough, and that's the point. Of, uh, it, they, they become meaningless. And the same thing, we say things like Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ mean? The word Christ is actually a word that literally means a king, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king that has been promised from history past that was going to come to set the world right, to bring healing, to bring redemption, bring forgiveness, bring restoration. And so all throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus is making this proclamation that he is the king. Jesus even asks his disciples, who do you guys say that I am? Peter pulls him aside. He's like, you're the king. Duh. We all know that. Like, you're the promised king that we hoped in. The problem is that they actually had a little bit of misconception as to who the king was and what the king would do. In their minds, they had a picture in their mind of a king being awfully similar to Caesar, right? Uh, in other words, Caesar's kingship was a dominant reign that would completely destroy and crush its enemies. Jesus, on the other hand, was a king that didn't come to shed the blood of his enemies, but to have his blood shed for his enemies. It's one of the reasons why they stumbled over Jesus. They were like, Jesus, your whole shtick is a little bit offensive and confusing, which makes a whole lot of sense. But the point of the matter is that Jesus, we see, is this king that comes, and he comes for the purpose of redeeming, bringing about the redemption. So Jesus comes as his king. We know the storyline. Jesus comes, he uh, suffers, he dies. But every once in a while throughout his life, he's uh, preaching the good news of the gospel, and he's also demonstrating the good news of the gospel. So every time Jesus healed someone, every time Jesus uh, prayed for someone and they were made whole, every time someone's eyes were opened, or every time a demon was cast out, or every time something good happened, 
what, if I can put it into a bigger context, what Jesus was doing was he was taking a life that was completely deranged and messed up and out of order and filled with chaos and replacing it with order and healing and wholeness. What Jesus was doing was he was sending shockwaves around the world saying, hey, God's kingdom of orderliness, of wholeness, of healing, which is good, it's breaking in. Where there's brokenness, it's being replaced with wholeness. Where there's sickness, it's being replaced with a sense of healing. Where there was nothing but minds that were broken, his whole angle is to say that God's kingdom is breaking in. This is such good news because what he's basically describing is God is subverting the powers in this world that has done nothing but bring brokenness in our lives. He's subverting that, overturning that, and replacing in its place healing. You realize this is why it's such good news. And this is what we mean by Act 4, redemption accomplished. The king is coming. This is why Jesus, in the context of Matthew, the last chapter that we just read, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. You understand, this is the story that we all find ourselves We either find ourselves in a spot whereby we are saying, yes, that is my story. I was broken. And he healed me. I was blind. He gave me sight. I was lost and I was found. I was an orphan. And he gave me a home. Or we find ourselves in this place of saying, I don't don't believe that. I don't trust that. I can't trust that because I, I I I can't see how it all can work out. I follow my story. I follow a law that I create. We're still living in an autonomous lifestyle. And autonomy, at some point, will run out on you. At some point, it will betray you. At some point, it will end. And when it finishes and when it breaks, you'll break with it. And that brokenness is deep and penetrating. But there's still wholeness. There's still redemption available to you, even in the midst of those moments. This is what we see with the idea of Act 4, redemption accomplished. And I'm wrapping this up. Act 5, we see the mission of the church. The mission of the church. And this is really the spreading of the good news. And we see this from Acts all the way through to and throughout all the epistles, that uh, the letters that were written. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus describes to his disciples, go, proclaim the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. I love that. Really what they're saying is that Jesus is sending them on his mission and saying, you have been entrusted with this message that actually brings wholeness. Now go and announce it. If you've been set free, go and communicate to all that are still bound that there is an opportunity for wholeness for you. There's an opportunity to be set free. There's an opportunity to have your sin forgiven, to have your offenses, to have your rebellion against God washed away and cleansed, to have your nakedness replaced with clothing, to have your shame done away with, to have it covered, to have it carried. Go announce this. And this is what the whole notion of the mission of the church is. Do you understand why it's so important to understand the concept of mission within the context of the story? Let me flip this inside out. If you don't know the story, and if all you hear is a sermon on, go to evangelism, go preach Jesus. And if you're not, you're a horrible Christian. What happens is, the idea of evangelism becomes nothing more than just another task 
that you're called to do, and if you don't do it, you're not a good Christian. To understand the idea of mission within the context of this story in which Jesus is king over all heaven and earth, of which you have been the recipient of brokenness in a deep way, but also have found completion in Christ. Now you have been brought into a story that is redemptive, that's healing. This is what God calls you. Christ commissions you to go forth into all this world. We'll unpack more what that looks like next week, but finally in closing is redemption completed. And this is really what he describes as just the focus of the book of Revelation, that one day Christ will come again and he will restore and heal all that which is broken. That this world in which we live in continue to become broken, will continue on the spiral downward of brokenness. And at Christ, we have this great hope that he will one day come and set the whole thing right. He will bring healing. There will be those who gladly welcome, gladly look forward to his return and welcome him. And Paul actually describes those who have this hope in them that Christ will return. They purify themselves. They live their lives in this world, not getting ensnared or entangled by all the crap and garbage of this world. But those who look at Christ and like, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it, will continue to cling to a story that at one point will have an end of brokenness. And the hope that Jesus gives is when it outlasts that. So finally, I want to finish with this thought and just kind of end with kind of a question on a very practical level, is how do we actually maintain a place in God's story? Like, how do we maintain it? So let's say, for example, if you're a Christian, and to some degree, this maybe makes sense to you. Maybe you've heard this before, and if it's old news to you, then, then hopefully that old news actually remains exciting and good news to you. Um, if you've never heard this before, hopefully it, it, it portrays for you a picture of the beauty of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, all of us, at some point, we're going to leave here today. We're going to get some food. Our, our, our kids are going to be freaking out. We're going to have to change your diaper. You're going to get in a fight with your spouse. You're going to have to be struck with the fact you've got to pay your rent. Uh, you're going to realize, like, we live in a drought-ridden state. You're going to realize that there's Republicans bickering with Democrats and Democrats bickering with Republicans. And uh, Mother Jones hates Fox News and Fox News hates Mother Jones. You're going to realize that we live in a world where at some point throughout the day, you're going to absolutely forget everything I just said to you. Is what I'm trying to say. We will slip back into a state of this sense of amnesia. So how do we remind ourselves and three things. One is just reading the Bible. I mean, I know it sounds really simple, but it's, it's, it's part of our birthright, if you want to think of it that way. It's, it, it's what reconnects our life, our minds, our thoughts, all that we are to the story of God, what God's up to. Um, I always encourage you guys to just figure out a good way, a good rhythm to read the Bible. Some of you guys are not readers. I am not a great reader. I am a much better audible person like I listen to stuff all the time all the time like I'd be honest with you I, I don't really read that much in fact if I were to kind of percentage wise I probably listen to stuff 90% of the time maybe 10% maybe 5% actually read stuff um, but figure out what works for you and, and get God's word in your heart figure out what works um, secondly be part of uh, the re- redeemed community we would just simply call this a church it's a community of people that have had life stories that have been broken and yet found wholeness in Jesus. We need each other. We cannot live lives of anonymity. Because at some point, life will break us. At some point, we will find ourselves lost in moments of life where we 
find ourselves so disoriented, we don't know what ends up. And what we need within that is by being reminded of the community of God's people, who we are, it recenters us. It brings us back into the storyline that God is king. Our lives are belonging to him. We've been redeemed by precious blood. He loves us. We're not just simply cogs in this big, monstrous system called God's church. We are beloved of this king. We need this reminder on a regular basis. And finally, I would just suggest it's the idea of the sacraments, or you can call ordinances, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter to me, but the idea is the Lord's Supper, reconnecting uh, the Jewish people every year would celebrate the Passover. Why? Because the Passover was a way of re-entering into the story. It was a way of reminding themselves we are God's people. We were once slaves in Egypt, but no longer because of an act of Yahweh that rescued us. Jesus takes the Lord's Supper and he breathes a whole new level of life into it. and says, this is a table that you come to. This Passover that you come to, when you eat the bread, you're coming to a, a table, you're coming to a feast which you don't deserve to be invited to because you are broken, you are outcast, yet you are welcome to come no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how foreign, no matter how strange God may seem to you, you, you are invited to this table and at this table eat and drink and you will be made whole. How? Why? We ask because Jesus holds up the bread. He says, this bread, my body, it's broken. His whole point is to say, your pathway to healing is through my brokenness for you. So we eat the bread. We drink the cup as a reminder of this is the people we are. People that were once broken, but made whole by a broken Savior. And finally, the idea of baptism. Baptism, we'll talk more about this next week, but it's an initiation into God's people. So I want to invite you, no matter who you are, if you're a person here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you into the story. You might ask, how do you do that? By repentance and faith. You turn from sin, turn from your rebellion, turn from those things that have once defined you, and you turn to the God that created you. You don't got to know how to pray. You don't got to know how to do anything. You just got to know how to just come to God and be really formed to say, God, I'm, I'm broken. I want to be made whole. If you're here this morning and you're Christian, I want to invite you to just respond to God and worship. So we're going to respond right now. So we respond typically almost every week, always, in three ways. One, we sing. We lift up our voices and we use our bodies as these instruments to God to sing. We raise our hands. We stretch out our hands. It's a way of just... Uh, lining up the posture of our hearts with our body, or lining up, I should say, our bo- posture of our body with our hearts. Uh, we raise our hands. It's a way of just simply saying, we're, we're, we're beggars. That's all we are. We're just beggars. We're in need of bread, and God has got lots of it. He's a, he's a, he's a God that feeds us. He's a God that doesn't just give out charity. He is, by definition, you know that great word charity just simply means love. He, by definition, doesn't just simply have charity to give. He is love itself embodied. He gives us life himself. We respond by uh, partaking the communion, as I just mentioned. We respond by prayer. If you're here this morning, there's just anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer. We're going to have people over off the side to pray for you over by the cross. Um, how could we respond? We're going to respond by just committing our hearts to God, just saying, God, we, we, we were once lost, but now we're found. We were once broken, but now you healed us. Thank you. Um, communion up front, there's some rugs in the front. If you just want to get on your faces before God and worship him, just come out of the crowd because maybe the crowd sometimes can be a little bit, like, maybe find your sense of 
you don't know who you are, just come before God and sit before him and worship him. Get on your knees before him. And let's respond to him. So why don't we all stand? Let's respond. Let's give God our hearts. Confess sin to him. Let's just respond in love and worship. Thank mm-hmm. you.